Hello, bonjour and tensez. I'm Paula Simons and this is Alberta Unbound. March 31st is the International Transgender Day of Visibility. And in Alberta, there's probably no more visible nor beloved figure of trans activism than Edmonton's Marnie Panis. By day, Marnie is an administrator with Alberta Health Services, working to help Alberta's public health care system to become more diverse and inclusive. But she's just as well known for her outspoken advocacy for LGBTQT rights, for her writing, her speech making, and her pioneering use of social media to open up public conversations about the everyday lives of trans Albertans. Marnie's gender identity is just one small facet of her busy life. As a proud Ukrainian-Canadian, she's also played a vital leadership role in helping Ukrainian refugees to rebuild war-shattered lives here in Alberta. Earlier this month, we sat down to talk about what it means to be trans in Alberta in 2023, about the growing global backlash against trans rights, and what identity really means. Here's that conversation. Marnie, in all of your biographies that I've read, it says that you grew up in a small town in Alberta. But I wanted to ask you, where where was that small town and what was that childhood like? Well, it was small town to me. Camrose is probably about 12,000 people at the time that I was um, I was growing up in Camrose. And that's about an hour southeast of Edmonton. And uh, so it certainly smelled, uh, felt like small town to me in the 70s. Yeah, I mean, I don't think people in Camrose would, they would be quite affronted if you called them a small town today. <laughs> but But what was that? What was that childhood like and what were gender roles like in the in the cameras of the 1970s? Yeah, and I think that's why it, it's, it felt like a small town to me because I was, you know, born and raised into a Catholic family, Ukrainian Catholic family, where gender norms, at least in, in my world, were very clearly defined. And I knew very early on as a child to if I was to deviate from any of those norms, it'd be it'd be catastrophic for me. So what so what did you do? I mean, what did what did being a little boy in Camrose look like? What did, I mean, were you playing hockey? Were you doing rodeo? Were you I mean, what, I mean, I mean, what I mean, what 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 persona did you have to adopt to 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 fit in with with that narrative? Well, interestingly, so I never did what well, was never really great at team sports or any sports for that matter. I think my persona was being alone. That's where I was safest. That's where my secrets were safest. That's where I was safest was more about being alone. Eventually, I did find a team in my Ukrainian dancing class. And so we danced for about 10 years. I always wanted to wear the ribbons and the beautiful skirts that the, that the women wore, but that was not meant to me for me. But I, I found uh, some community in that sense. And how important was your Ukrainian identity to you? It still is. It's still very much a part of my identity. I mean, we're all raised with our own identities, even, you know, my you know, the faith that I was born in, the the my Ukrainian identity, it's all part of who I am today. You know, being trans is one adjective of hundreds that can yeah. use to describe me. You don't, you know, when, when somebody comes out as trans, it doesn't erase all of the other identities that I have, in particular that of my Ukrainian um, ethnicity. Alberta likes, to, I mean, we have this persona we adopt as a province. I don't mean we in the sense of you and me, but I mean we yeah. in the sense of the capital A, Alberta. It's a very macho, it's a very masculine thing. I, I, I thought to myself, maybe it's because we're named, we have this goofy girl's name, Alberta. I mean, maybe we're, over, <laughs> maybe we're overcompensating for, for having really like the dumbest name in Confederation. Sorry, Albertans. <laughs> what do you think about the way that we have constructed a sense of identity for the province? So cishet masculine. 
Well, that certainly does exist. And I think that's certainly a stereotype that a lot of people have put on Albertans. And, and you know, there's a reason why stereotypes exist, for sure. But I think to generalize Albertans in, in all that way wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be reasonable because I've, you know, I've grown up and met so many people who have continued to to push the dial and to move us forward. I mean, we were one of the first provinces in Canada to, you know, add gender identity and gender expression to protect your grounds under our Human Rights Act. So that tells you something. And so, you know, there are uh, a lot of amazing people who buck against that trend, I would say. So for you growing up, I mean, what is your earliest recollection of understanding that you were not what what society perceived you to be? Oh wow, great question. So I you know, I think it goes back to age five, six. What growing up, you know, in the seventies, of course we didn't have internet. <laughs> you know, I always joke that I had two channels on TV and my channels were on and off, essentially. So <laughs> <laughs> so I didn't have the words and the language to articulate how I felt. I just knew that I didn't fit into what was expected of me as that that young boy. I knew I felt at peace wearing my mom's clothes, my sister's clothes, like in, in when I was like five and six, but I never heard the word transgender until it was my 30s. So to describe who I was would be impossible, but to describe who I wasn't is probably more accurate. And it's, you know, you know, 40, 50 years of hindsight that that clarity comes through that now all those things that I look back in my life now make sense, right? There's a lot of aspects of my life thinking back that, okay, that's why that happened. That's why I would do that. Yeah. You know, even growing up early, as, <laughs> this is a story I don't share very often, but I remember going to the bathroom um, at my, <laughs> my parents' house and there would be all these dolls and knickknacks and all the things and on on the toilet and all around and I would always have to turn them around so they wouldn't see me and it, it would be decades when I would remember that moment I'm like oh like now that makes sense thinking back but at the time I didn't know why and I think that's what's really important with, with youth and, and young people today to a see role models I never met anybody who was who wasn't white for the first 13 years of my life let alone you know trans or gay or you know and so that's why visibility is so important for youth today and to have words and language to to articulate who people are is, is so powerful for for people growing up today you lived your life in that persona you got married became a father mm -hmm. at what point did you decide that you, you, you couldn't live that life anymore? Mm -hmm. Also a great question. There comes a point in life where on a journey like mine, where what you fear losing by not being true to you hails in comparison to what you will lose if you continue to hide. And at some point there becomes a tipping point. And that tipping point, be, be, a point became very, very clear. You know, it, had I continued hiding who I was and fighting against that that current that had always been be pushing me back in that closet, I don't know if I'd be sitting here talking with you today. And so there becomes that point. I mean, my, my spouse, who I married, loved me for who I was right from the get-go. She knew there was another side of me. And we spent, you know, 16, nearly 20 years together. And still, to this day, although we're divorced and she's uh, uh, married to somebody else, and because you know, you know, being married to a woman who wasn't living her authentic self, we're still great co-parents and still probably one of my biggest allies and, and has my back. But at some point, there just became that time that I knew that it became a matter of my survival to finally be true to me. Now, you had an entirely separate trauma in your family life, which is that you and, and your, your spouse had twin sons and yeah. lost, lost one of the babies not long after he was born. Do you think that going through that, as horrific as it would have been, was one of the things that pushed you to really live as your true self? 
I would say that that was probably the most important moment in my life. Um, to this day, 16 years later, you know, what's ironic or maybe not ironic is that today is March 18th that we're recording this particular podcast and it's their due date. It's 16 years uh-huh. after their due date. They were three and a half months early. And yeah. on this day, we celebrated their zero birthday party. And uh, and it was the first time that I would hold both my boys together at the same time because they'd been too sick up to this point and not knowing at that point that it would be the only time that I would hold them together because Andrew would pass away two weeks later. And that was a bit of a surprise certainly we were expected to go home by this day so today's a pretty special day in my world wow. and and reflecting on that moment holding my sons was the happiest moment of my life continues to this day when my son passed away in my arms was the saddest but in that moment of holding andrew as he took his last few breaths really was pivotal in understanding what what life really means and not living life without regret and it was really in that moment that i started to live true in, in all aspects of my life, going back to school, getting my degree for the first time, um, started uh, volunteering at the Children's Hospital, which turned into a amazing career, and then started on this very personal journey that brings me to this conversation with you today. You have made a choice to be extraordinarily public about all of these things, about your life as a, as a grieving parent, about your life as, as a parent, period, because you, on social media, talk about your son with such love all the time you've shared your transition i mean remember back when twitter was not exactly a safe place but a <laughs> reasonable place you know you so you've shared your story on social media you've done lots of interviews you 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 know you have a, a apart from your career working in in health administration you also have a career as a you know as a public speaker and uh you know you you have shared this story a lot a lot of people would never have had the courage or the willingness to be that open. Why did you decide mm. to use, you know, not just not just conventional means, but social media to share so much of what was so intensely private with so many people? I remember growing up again in that small town or a smallish town um, that you know, not having role models, not having anybody to look up to. I learned very early on, actually, again, with my boys, where I was asked to share our, our story at, at a Grand Rounds presentation, realizing that I had a voice and I've got a lot of privilege, you know. And so using my voice to share my stories became also part of my survival. It became part of my therapy. But also I recognized that when I'm sharing my truth and it's important to own every part of my narrative, every single part of it, because when I don't, when other people are filling in the blanks, it could be really problematic and even dangerous. So I've learned to be live out loud and to, to share all my stories because I know how important it is for youth, for children, for the parents of those children to see somebody who's thriving and happy and successful and doing amazing things in the world. I happen to be trans, but I happen to be a whole bunch of other things as yeah. well. And it wasn't until, gosh, maybe a few years ago where I was um, doing a, uh, I was participating in a blanket exercise and an Indigenous elder who, who I got to know very well over those years said to me, you know, Marnie, share your life so others may live. And that's put it all into perspective as to why I can continue to do this. I broke I broke up with Twitter on January 1st. We miss you. Well, uh, and I miss Twitter. But I mean, that is where I came to know your story. And yeah. it just speaking to you now, I'm thinking about many things, but I'm also, you know, mourning the fact that there was a public square where at one time, at least, people were given voice. And now yeah. I really worry about a backlash, a cultural backlash that is happening in every sphere 
I mean, driven in large part by Republican politics in the United States, where so much of what had been people opening their minds to people's sense of gender identity, Mm -hmm. it feels like it's being closed off. And I wondered if you could talk, I guess, a little bit about how far we had come and where we might be sliding back. It's such an important concept because for marginalized communities, for people on the fringes of society, the online platforms are essential to finding connection, to finding each other, to not be alone. You know, social media was so, so important uh, to find other people like me. For the first time, when I found that there was other people like me, oh, Paula, it just, it changed my whole world. And so that was really important. And that has certainly shifted. It's, It's such a powerful tool for finding that connection. But when we talk about freedom of expression, it's a fallacy. It doesn't exist for me. It doesn't exist for for marginalized communities. You know, it's safer to be racist, homophobic. It's safer to be transphobic. It's safer to be sexist online than it is to be trans, gay, a woman, black, indigenous online. So, you know, freedom of expression, yay, I don't feel free at all to express myself, certainly not online. So yeah, you know, there's a lot of voices that are truly being canceled. And it's the voices that really need to be heard and to find connection with other voices like themselves. Yeah. So I guess, I mean, I want to drill down into this because I really feel, I mean, you you made a comment earlier about how Alberta Alberta was one of the first provinces Mm -hmm. to include gender identity Mm -hmm. in its human rights legislation. I mean, that's because of a very particular moment in Alberta history. In the time that you've been in public life, I feel like the last 10 years were this great, I don't want to say golden age, but this time of growing acceptance And growing a real change in the dialogue and the discourse, not just in Canada, but in Alberta around gender and gender identity. I mean, and I think you were a -hmm. really important voice in changing people's minds Mm -hmm. because you were so public and because people saw, oh, this is a this is a parent. This is somebody, you know, who's working at Alberta Health Services, helping, you know, helping with our whole sense of making the healthcare system more inclusive. So what, I mean, what have been sort of the high points in that journey that opened up that conversation and allowed more people to understand what it was to be trans and what it was to be included? I, I owe a lot of that actually to the media in Canada, yourself included, Paula. Like during it was a, it was a golden era for for sharing stories, um, like the true stories, and not not the superficial stuff, not the the surface stuff. Like we got into the deep stuff where people truly got to know people like me. Because the best way of reducing discrimination and barriers is to get to know people who are different than you. And what I found certainly growing up or or uh, coming out as trans in Edmonton, the media and the Edmonton space has been amazing. And to share the stories and the deep stories and get getting beyond um, you know the the surgery part and the transition part because we're humans way beyond that. Again, not not to reduce me to my trans identity. This whole conversation is talking a whole bunch of parts of me, which is which is refreshing in many ways. So that was a big part of it, um, you know. And then having you're right, the right governments in the right place at the right time with the right people making changes changes across the country and seeing, you know, the gender identity, gender expression being added to protected grounds under Canada's Human Rights Act. I was in the Senate back in the day, you know, giving testimony at that point. And I think what's important is that we have to recognize those moments in time for what they are and, and really leverage the opportunities when they come because they come so fleetingly because we're always one election away from losing rights that have been fought for for so, so hard. And when I think about history, you know, the, the one of the most... Uh, 
violent times for for women wasn't the fight leading up to the uh, to, to the getting the vote and the suffragette movement. It was the time after, you know, for for black people in the U.S. It was not the fight for civil rights. It was the time after, and the same thing for trans and non-binary people. You know, our fight leading up to getting rights recognized in the Human Rights Act that wasn't the violent time. It's the pushback that happens yeah. afterwards because all of a sudden, when somebody else is a little bit more equal, it feels like a threat to people who have been used to power for so 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 long, and that's the threat. And then people start to backlash against that. And I think what we're experiencing now is what we've experienced throughout society and throughout history. Yeah, there is that equal and opposite reaction, I guess, as a law of political physics. But it is spooky to me after what I say was this really, this time that really felt full of joy and acceptance. And now we see the anger and people feeling so threatened. I, I guess the question is, why do people feel so threatened? Was it what is it about people's own sense of their own gender identity that they feel this, you know, this great sense of unease when people violate that kind of Fisher Price little little boys and little girls mm -hmm. norms? I mean, you and I are in our 50s. We grew up in a world where the gender binary was really not questioned. Yeah. And now that it is, I mean, there are a lot of people who really seem to be not just frightened and angry, but really disoriented. Disoriented is probably a great word for that. I think for, you know, when I think back of what you just said, I have never felt more unsafe as a trans person in this province as I have in the last year alone. Twice. Once I've been had to be escorted off a university campus by police because of threats that were made while I was giving a lecture. And just as recently as two weeks ago, I had to have police escort me into a, an event raising money for, for protection of women from violence. And yet I have protection coming in because of my identity. People fear what they don't know. But I think also they're the underlying threat to, to trans people. And it's trans women. It's not all trans people. Just when you look at who is being targeted, it's trans women. When you look at, you know, drag queen story hour, it's about drag queens dressing up as women. And so the underlying piece in that is sexism, misogyny. And I think we cannot ignore those intersections. And again, that's it's a threat to, quite frankly, um, patriarchy. You know what? I would also say that some of that threat is not, I mean, what's interesting is that the, the, it's not just coming from sort of right-wing people defending the patriarchy. My daughter has a number of close friends who are trans, people who grew up reading J.K. Rowling and yeah. really loving her. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so, I mean, that kind of turf feminism is also really concerning to me when you see people from the political left especially in great britain and mm -hmm, maybe in, mm -hmm. maybe in quebec too you know women who are saying that they feel threatened by people who are trans because it, it is undermining the rights they fought for as women i mean i think that's very wrong-headed but it's intriguing to me to see that some of the pushback isn't just coming from the political right it's coming from the political left as well oh yeah yeah well right and left seems to be fluid with a lot of people who will say left but still when you, you listen to this brand of feminism which is not feminism the moment you exclude any woman from your brand of feminism it's not feminism it's and and when you're reducing that woman's womanhood to the ability to procreate yeah. that's not feminism that is patriarchy <laughs> it's finest and misogyny right so right, so i think there's that part of it too so i think um what's 
interesting there. And, and, and that's probably why I feel unsafe because a lot of that influence people in those positions like JK Rowling, who have a platform, who've built a huge platform and a lot of money, made a lot of money on those books is now using that platform to try to remove us from society. And yet complains about cancel culture, yet the moment anybody says something about her, she sends her lawyers after us. <laughs> so. It's a, it's a, it's a, you know, my, my daughter was so heartbroken because she loved those books as a little kid. And now she feels so alienated and angry. And I said, you know, yeah. A, I believe in the death of the author as a, as a, as a critical concept, but B, I said, JK Rowling, the whole theme of those books is that adults can't be trusted. And that adults who you thought were good turn out to be very problematic. I said, she, she wrote the story and then she turned herself into yeah. Dolores Umbridge. And it is really interesting to see somebody who was so much a part of the cultural zeitgeist for those millennial and Gen Z kids be rejected by those same kids who are turning her arguments against her, you know, saying you raised us to be brave and open-minded. And, you know, I mean, I, I think in a lot of ways, our, our culture is still wrestling with deep deep questions about who we are and that gender binary that's so very hard to lose because it's inculcated in us from birth. It's true. And now as I reflect on what you're saying now, now, you know, JK Rowling and others have huge platforms and they're really, really loud. And it is a minority group of people. When I look at the events that have occurred over the last few months, particularly around International Women's Day in this province and, and the Hershey uh, ad that went on, every major feminist organization in this country stood up for trans women. Yeah. Like, every single one and and that did not go unnoticed so it's a small voice but a powerful powerful voice so for me when i think of the, the hate that i received online um which is a lot when i look at who it is um you know bots and all the and, and people yeah. who i'll never meet but the support that i get day in and day out by somebody you know that i know has my back or sometimes stands in front of me. When all that was happening, I had colleagues showing up at that event to stand in front of me and stand with me. Um, I've had people reach out, you know, just because of the nature of my work saying, you know what, because of what you did, I, I have the hope that maybe I don't have to choose between being a healthcare provider and my identity. And those moments, Paula, are so worth it every single time. I want to talk about a different facet of your identity, because sure. I think this is a really important part of who you are and a really important part of understanding Alberta. You have been really involved in work helping people who've come from Ukraine in the last year to find sanctuary here in Alberta. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what that's meant for you in terms of your Ukrainian identity and what you've been doing personally to support Ukrainian families who have uh, come here and what that's taught you about your Ukrainian and Alberta <laughs> identities. I love that. Yeah, of course. Again, as we said, you know, my Ukrainian identity has been part of who I am. I've been to Ukraine. It's it's, it's part of my my. my culture my background my son is you know we're big that's a big part of our world and when the when the latest part of the war broke out in in um in the ukraine i i was troubled and sitting here thinking what can i do it just felt so helpless and 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 knowing that i have you know friends and relatives back home distance wise but there's still people that i'm connected to in one way or another um what do you do and so very early on i just you know reached out to the ukrainian canadian congress and said if anybody needs a place to stay i i got a i got a room in my house and and not thinking that anything would come of it but one night or 11 o'clock at night a phone call came and said marnie we've got two people who just arrived at the airport in edmonton from the ukraine they're coming to your house tomorrow morning and <laughs> had no time to prepare no time to think about it 
And so sure enough, Irena uh, uh, and Vladimir uh, showed up at my home through trauma. And you could just sense the trauma that they were going through the last two months trying to flee Ukraine through Romania and, and getting to, to this to, to sanctuary. And I could offer that for a moment. And, and they stayed with us for a couple months and we were able to get them their health care and find jobs. And, and now they're living on their own and you know, thriving as best they can while still thinking about wanting to go back home. And it really, of course, it did connect me back to to my roots and what was important. But it also, it was very connected to my trans identity in the sense that I welcomed people into my home that I had no idea would accept me. Yeah. And that was a risk. And it was really scary. Yeah. And I, for the first time in years, had to come out to somebody. And the moment when they were sitting at the table and I said, you know, by the way, you know, Alex is my other son. And I said, you know, his mom is Lorena. And I said, you know, Lorena is his mom and I'm his mom too. And they both looked at us and said, oh yeah, we know. We figured that out on day one. <laughs> Meanwhile, for days I was terrified. And he said to me, I'm not like those other people. My mom and I are not like those other people. We we know and we, 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 we're very welcoming. And he gets up in my home and says, you be free to be you. And gives me a big hug and just became too families that chose each other and we are truly family to this day and we're still connected we see each other almost every week and and we will never not be family now we haven't talked a lot on this program yet about the importance of ukrainian culture and ukrainian identity mm. to alberta's sense of itself and especially north central alberta's sense of itself and when i drive around the city these days i see so many yellow and blue flags i, I see one you know right right over your shoulder as i'm speaking with you and I think a lot of people have felt much more connected to Ukraine in the wake of this invasion. And even I have all my family are not ethnic Ukrainians, but they're all from Ukraine. And so seeing a Jewish leader in Ukraine mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and thinking about my own Jewish family from mm -hmm. Ukraine, I mean, I think the events of the last 12 months have really heightened Alberta's sense of connection to that part of the world. I mean, what do you think it has meant for you as an Albertan of Ukrainian descent to feel this sense of connection with what is happening there. I, I don't think there's any Albertan who doesn't know a, somebody who has a Ukrainian connection in some way or another, because, you know, you know, the largest diaspora of, of Ukrainians outside of Ukraine and Russia are, are here in Canada and most in Alberta. So, and you know, my family came in 1903. And so we've had a, you know, 120 year history of, of being in Alberta. And we have many stories, you know, of, you know, of so many Ukrainians like us who are part of the fabric of Alberta, you know, breaking the land. And, you know, we were some of the earlier, um, foreign labor <laughs> back in the day, and but have really you know become part of the fabric of of Alberta, no question about it. And so I think everybody has that sort of connection just because of the strong Ukrainian identity that's here, but also how it's been integrated into Alberta culture and history. And I think we all have a connection in some sort of way. I try to stay out of provincial politics for obvious mm -hmm. reasons. I try to stay in my lane. But Alberta is coming up to a provincial election that is going to be, I think, a landmark election in our history, where there are going to be very clear choices between two visions yep. of this province. And this is a province in many ways that is a province making its own transition. So I guess I want to ask you what advice you can give to Alberta as she tries to figure out what her identity is and what kind of an Alberta she wants to be. 
Well, first of all, I don't know if Alberta truly is a she, so I'll go with they. Um, <laughs> Alberta has not told us that yet, but <laughs> well, that's true. Just be, just because it's a it's a female name, I shouldn't I shouldn't be I shouldn't be presupposing pronouns. You know, I think when people say, "Well, that's not us," that's not us. When they see violence, when they see people harassing people, when they see the rise of anti Asian hate and anti Indigenous hate and Islamophobia, and people keep saying, "That's not us." Then what does that mean? Because if it's happening, that is us. And so we have to be mindful of that. So I really think if I had a message to every Albertan is to think what's truly important for you, what uh, what Alberta do you want to be associated with? Uh, what are your values? What do you want to be proud of? What what kind of place do you want your children to grow up in and your and your friends and family? And then Look at who is supporting your values, who aligns with your values, get behind them, run yourself. And if you can't run yourself, support people who do share your values, but get involved. Because again, we are always only one election away from losing hard, hard fought rights. And the, the world could change on a dime. And we're seeing that all across. When, when one group of people feels more included, safer in this province, everybody benefits from that. It's not an, all one or the other. It's all of us that benefit from an inclusive province where people truly are valued and can thrive. That is a perfect ending. Marnie Panis, thank you very much for being with us on Alberta Unbound. It's been a delight to speak with you. Oh, the delight was truly mine. Thank you for, for getting deep. This was great. And that was my conversation with Edmonton trans icon and passionate Ukrainian-Canadian Marnie Panis fighting for trans visibility every day of the year. Alberta Unbound is produced and edited by Caitlin Cummings and written and presented by me, Independent Senator Paula Simons. If you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating or a review and goose our Alberta Unbound algorithm, or just share us with a friend who might enjoy our conversations. We'll be back next month with another edition of Alberta Unbound. Until then, thank you, merci, and hi hi.